Hello everyone and welcome to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Red Eye. I'm your host, Eddie Palmian, and with me here in the studio is my friend and colleague, Niklas Savos. How are you doing today? So I'm really refreshed after some, some holiday and excited to be back today. Same here, and I'm excited to do our second interview today with Jake Taylor. Jake is an author, he's also a fellow podcast host, and he is a professional investor running the firm Farnham Street Investments. He's also the founder of the software Journalytic. And for those who didn't listen to the second episode or don't remember, what did we talk about in, in that interview with Jake? So we talked about his own book, The Rebel Allocator, which we believe is an easy read into the investing topic as it's written as a fiction story. And as we discussed then, Charlie Munger actually called up Jake and wanted to bring the story to Hollywood. And we're still waiting for that. Looking forward to see if we can get some, some clues about that today. But the main topic is that we're going to speak about one of Jake's favorite books, Deep Survival with the subtitle Who Lives, Who Dies and Why. And this is a fascinating book uh, with many lessons for investors and I really look forward to discussing it. Here comes our conversation with Jake Taylor. Hello Jake and welcome back to Investing by the Books podcast. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me back guys. Thank you for taking the time. And last time we spoke, that was summer of 2021. You were our second guest on the show. Um, so where are you located this time and what has happened? Uh, I'm likely in the same place. Uh, I've, I live still live in Folsom, California uh, in the US, so haven't moved. Same house. I've uh, been here for, boy, uh, 14 years in the same house. So <laughs> I've got, I'm a bit of a creature of habit. <laughs> the book stacks keep growing behind you. Yeah, you can't see some other shelves that are off screen either that are uh, taking the the overflow section. It's, it's my wife is not happy actually with the <laughs> the current state of the bookshelf. <laughs> and for those not familiar with Jake Taylor, can you tell us a bit about yourself? Uh, sure. I mean, I'm I'm a guy that uh, likes to wear a lot of hats uh, apparently because uh, I've got multiple projects that I'm working on. Um, I so. Uh, Kind of my primary day job, if you'll call it, is uh, being the CEO of Farnham Street Investments. Um, and so that's like managing money, basically. Um, I do a podcast with a couple of buddies that's uh, weekly on Tuesdays uh, called Value After Hours. That's a lot of fun. Um, and then my most recent thing is um, I launched a software company, uh, really uh, mostly, and I'm sure we'll get into this later, but um, mostly just to scratch my own itch of measuring all the things about my investment process that I was currently not recording and not paying attention to, even though I knew that they were important. And um, so the whole, uh, that's a recent thing that's uh, just now uh, become publicly available. So I'm, I'm pretty excited to get that out uh, for the world to see because it's been being cooked behind the scenes for a couple of years now. Yeah, we'll come back to, the, to that a bit later. But uh, let us start with one of all the books that I'm sure is in, in, in the bookshelf behind you, Deep Survival, that I, you have selected for this episode. Can you tell us why you chose it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my, my, I, I prefer to look for investment wisdom in books that are ostensibly have nothing to do with investing. And, you know, this book is amazing in that it teaches a lot about the mindset of what allows someone to survive in in a harrowing situation and those who don't and you know i think the markets although you know never really actually test our mortal uh you know you're not going to die if your portfolio gets wrecked although it does i mean people do take very uh drastic action sometimes from that so it's this is sometimes a life and death matter but um but more generally that stress that 
that um, you know feeling of being lost, all of those same things that can happen in survival situations are can experience, be experienced by an investor. And so just the the psychology and the emotional side of the investment process, I think is is really well captured in this book uh, to help you try to prepare for that inevitable, uh, you know, when you're, you get shipwrecked with your portfolio. <laughs> and the author of the book is Lawrence Gonzalez. Can you tell us about him? Uh, you know, I don't know a ton about him, but I, I do know that um, he's associated with the Santa Fe Institute, which, you know, for me is a huge check plus. Um, just uh, it, for those who aren't familiar with it, it's this, um, it's a multidisciplinary uh just like a think tank i guess might be called and these it's basically like academics who are from a bunch of different domains they get together and try to solve problems in in ways that are novel because they're approaching it together um you know so you have a biologist and an economist working on something or you know an author and a uh you know a physicist working on problems together so you get these different you don't have the same, you know, man with a hammer showing up trying to solve the same problem. We have multiple tools that are uh, tackling a problem, and they end up coming out with some very novel, interesting solutions to things. And so, uh, I believe Gonzalez is associated with them. And uh, but otherwise, he's just a. I think he's generally just a, a an author and uh, just writes a lot and uh, pretty prolific, actually. He's also a pilot uh, of different uh, kind of planes, aer- aerobatic and uh, commercial and. Many different, right. uh, which was also his father's profession. So in the book, we read about both survival stories as well as those that did not go as well. Do you have like a favorite survival story out there? Um, well, the, like the survival one, the positive one um, is for me, and this is a, you know a little bit of bias in that it happened in my relatively in my backyard. Like I live in California, not very far from Lake Tahoe, and the story is this guy was just took a quick ski day up at Squaw Valley. Um, and I've skied there lots of times. Uh, and so like, it, it just feels like those things hit home more when you're in the same location as what you're reading about. Right. And so, uh, this guy was just skiing on a normal day, a uh, little bit underprepared in that he thought it was going to be a kind of a warmer day. And so he wasn't real, you know, dressed really warmly, but he ends up getting off track and into some back country and he's by himself and he gets lost and he ends up having to hike out of of the out of the woods basically and it took i think he was outside for two nights and he's very very dramatically underdressed for this um and he like he should have died i mean literally the conditions you know would you would have predicted that he would have died from this just because of hypothermia and you know no food no water uh underprepared <clears throat> no fire uh but he ends up living and he did survive with, I believe, three of his toes still intact. Uh, <laughs> so that's, you know, that's 70% damage. That's not great. But but to live is amazing. And what what allowed him to live, actually, or what he says is that he just, he really wanted to see his son again. And uh, that will, that drive pushed him to to just figure out a way to stay alive and march and like basically hike out from, uh, you know, over a couple of days in freezing storm conditions. Uh, so that, that will I found to be very inspiring and it happened in my backyard. So it's kind of fun. I mean, it's, it's really interesting that you say that because I was on holiday now on, on the Canary islands and we had this survival story of, of the guy, I think his name was Callahan who built a boat and he was going to go to the, to the West Indies. And after a day or two, the boat 
I mean, got got destroyed, and he had to jump into his to his life uh, boat, and and I think he's, he drifted from there to to the West Indies for like more than eighty days or something, living on on fish that he that he caught. So I think it's, I mean, just that connection where when, when you read something just and, and you are at that place, I think it's really, really connecting. Yeah, it's a lot more powerful, huh? Yeah. Uh, yeah, the one that I, that stayed in my mind the most was not uh, in my backyard, but it was in Peru with a, an airplane in 1971 where a 17-year-old girl, uh, the, the plane got uh, destroyed mid-air. She falls out of it, lands in the jungle. She sees all this broccoli, downs, just flies down, lands with her, in her seat. She's wearing only like heels and a, and a dress. She's 17 years old. She has candy, almost no food. And she just runs through the jungle for 11 days. And she's eaten alive by leeches and strange tropical insects, <laughs> which bored into her, laid their Ugh. eggs and produced worms that hatched and tunneled out through her skin. It's just crazy. These stories are, are really fascinating. Yeah, wasn't that wild? And then the other people who f- somehow survived that, uh, they also were in the jungle for 11 days, but they all died. They were adults. And, <laughs> you know, it's, he, this, this 17-year-old girl was somehow able to, to survive and just uh, put one foot in front of the other to hike out of the jungle, basically. Yeah, all the others, they followed the rule. They, they stayed put, which is not a bad advice, but they stayed put and uh, no one came to rescue them. Well, she had learned from her father that if you go downhill, you can find water. If you follow the water, you can find civilization. And that's pretty much what happened after almost a dozen days. So it's nice to talk about these survival stories, but uh, do you have one impactful story when it did not go as well? Yeah. Um, so this is also somewhere where I've been before, and it's uh, it's Mount Hood. And it's in 2002, four guys were climbing Mount Hood. And you know, Mount Hood is considered a beginner's climb, which is actually a very dangerous idea. Uh, you know, people underprepare, they don't train enough, they don't respect the mountain enough if they believe it's just for beginners. And, you know, it's this huge sheet of ice that you can basically hike up, but getting down is another story. And this is where, where tragedies happened. Uh, so these four guys are all connected together with ropes, like in these harnesses. And, you know, the top guy is considered the anchor. And he's sort of belaying, which means like letting rope out to to lower the other guys. So they're all working their way down this hill or this mountain. And the the key thing is it's very important that the top guy doesn't fall because he's the anchor. And if he falls, you know, the way that the ice works and the steepness of that of the mountain, like he's going 30 miles an hour by the time that he is, you know, is shooting past the next guy. So that's what ends up happening. This The top guy falls and he ends up taking everybody with him down this mountain and they're all connected by this rope. And so they're all, you know, being pulled in forces and like tumbling around. They end up sideswiping two other people and then four, another group of four. So there's a group, a total of 10 people who have been caught up in this basically slide down the hill and they all then crash into a wall down at the bottom and fall into a crevasse and and half of them end up dying. The other half are, are, you know, basically maimed. And it's just this, it's super, it's a very sad story because uh, it's, you know, reasonably young people and, you know, nobody I'm sure thought like, gosh, I'm going to go climb this mountain today and I'm, I'm not coming home. Uh, but what what's important, and I think what we could take away some of the lessons there for the investment world is that, um, <clears throat> one, we have to be very careful about who we're connected to and, you know, if and mentally, and if they 
fall off the mountain, if they were your anchor and they fall off the mountain and they get panicked, they may pull you off as well. And that's, you know, a situation that you never want to find yourself in panicking like that. Um, you know, there's also some, you have to think about like that there's a ton of stored energy, potential energy in a physics way with having people up that high and the ability, like the energy released as they slide. And I think that there's a bit of a, an element to expensive markets have a similar energy, potential energy that can be released in kinetic energy of sliding downwards. Um, and then, you know, you could get into a lot of uh, like <clears throat> what this guy named Charles Perot called normal accidents. And what, what the, that, that was a whole book. Uh, but what, what it's really, if you boil it down, is that anytime that you have a system that is relatively complex and that pieces within the system are interconnected tightly, tightly coupled, he would call it, there's a chance for a runaway disaster from small errors accumulating and then just like going critical. So, um, and you can sort of see the analogy with being connected together with rope, like you're, you're highly interconnected, literally, and you have the, a complex system in that, you know, you can't arrest your slide very easily and, and you get this cascading problem of people sliding down together. So, I think, you know, there's tons of takeaways that we can get from, from a, this physical world and that, you know, the peril that people put themselves in and then, you know, ment mentally and, and dealing with markets and, and using those same sort of survival mentality uh, and applying it and the same kind of dangerous things that can happen in that physical world can be represented somewhat in, in the financial world. It's a systematic risk, I guess, is the, what you would call it in the financial yes. world versus right. idiosyncratic risk and uh, using leverage in those situations with so many people, so much weight. That's uh, yeah, fatal. Yeah, you, you said it better than I did. <laughs> and I mean, ultimately, rule number one of investing is uh, not to lose money. And uh, rule number one of, of life is probably not to die, which we learn about how to avoid in the book. Uh, and at the same time, investing in life is about taking calculated bets or, or risks. And as we learned from Gonzalez, not taking any risks in life would lead to a quite dull life. How have you formed your investment process uh, to avoid losing money, but still enable you to get a healthy return? It's a big question. but Yeah, I mean, so I think that the, the key thing is that, uh, of course, you have to remember that markets are paramutual games, paramutual betting system, just like the racetrack is. And what that means then is that the odds are implied often in the price of something happening. So you're not looking for the surefire winner necessarily of the race. You're looking for mispriced bets within that. So that's that's number one. Uh, number two is that you, know, you want to always try to make sure that you're getting attractive odds in whatever it is that you're doing. Where you can go wrong is that it's incredibly easy to fool yourself into thinking you know what the odds are and being a little like being pretty dramatically wrong on that. So this is where a margin of safety becomes very important. You don't want to you want to have a, a wide berth for if you are actually wrong on what the odds of success versus failure look like and don't go near the edge. So um, that that's what I try to do. And I try to remember, you know, I mean, the ideal if you knew what the exact mathematical outcomes were like in a mechanical system like rolling dice or you know card games, things like that, um, you could come up with the odds of winning versus losing very strictly. And you could come up with a, a Kelly formula bet to tell you what the, the ideal position sizing would be. Well, we're fooling ourselves if we think 
that in the, the messy real world of business and investing that we know the exact odds of success versus failure enough to ever really use a true Kelly bet. So we need to like back off from that a lot to allow for us to have errors. And so I think what ends up happening is that you see people uh, overbetting basically like they get overconfident and they bet too big on single things and it ends up blowing up in their face and being being they're mortally wounded by that so having backing off your bet size to to be more appropriate for a margin of safety i think is very important and it is really easy to overlook when markets are just trending upwards i think about the i mean the kelly criterion i think we have i've read many books i mean who uh, who have with with authors or investors that have actually changed their view on on using i mean the kelly criterion for example munish pabrai had it in in his book the dando investor but it has afterwards said that if he would remove one part of the book it would be that, <laughs> be that. <laughs> chris mayer said the same about the hundred baggers yeah yeah well it's you know it's there's what is theoretically correct and then there is what is actually applicable. And sometimes those things are, are they don't live in the same area. <laughs> yeah. I mean, one, one thing we learn about uh, from the book is that uh, we should stop and think about what uh, steps we should take in a, in a survival situation and, and not just run faster. Do you have some kind of stop mechanism in, in your investment process? Uh, you know, I I do, and often it, it is the form of a checklist. Uh, and what that does is it allows you to tune down your system one thinking, which Daniel Kahneman would say, like your you know your fast kind of gut impulse, your first thing that you think. And that does often actually there are smart things that can come out of that. Like your gut reactions in certain situations are does have reasonable information in it, uh, but. Often it doesn't, and you, just knowing the difference can be important. Um, this and what you want to do is engage that system too, which is the slow, methodical, actually sometimes painful uh, thinking process. And what that does then is it takes some of the emotion out. Uh, and what I found is that even like time itself is a is a great uh, reducer of the emotion. So let's say that uh, you know one of my companies comes out with a a 10Q, and like it it, it seems like a disaster to me. Well. I can be really bothered by it, and uh, you know, my first pass it through it is like, oh my god, this is this is a disaster. Uh, but what's amazing is if I go and I look at that, you know, and, and generally, what happens also is that the price is reflected as well, uh, and everyone else thinks it's a da- disaster, and there's a lot of you know selling at that point, and it looks very painful. Uh, <clears throat> but with a little bit of time. And, you know, I think the time amount that, you know, varies by the person, but a lot of that emotion gets drained away. And when I go back and look at it again, oftentimes it's not quite as bad as I, as I thought it was on first pass. So uh, I think going back through and reviewing later is, can actually drain a lot of that emotion out of the process. Uh, I've also found journaling about it to be very helpful of getting, getting it, once it's out of your head, it it's a little it feels like it's more processed and then you're not uh it's, you're not stewing on it as much in the in a way that can lead you into spiraling often out uh in and feeling even worse than what it what the the situation would warrant and i mean there there are countless examples in the book when both the author himself and and others in i mean examples that he brings up in the book have known not to act in a certain way but still ends up doing it so can you Please bring up some examples of when your process has screamed at you to avoid acting in a certain way, but where you still ended up doing it. 
<laughs> well, yeah. So it's sort of asking, like, uh, if I had a could wave a magic wand, what would I fix right now, right? Because um, <clears throat> it's like you know what the problem is, but you're you continue to do it. Override, override. I mean, we're not machines, so it's. I mean, we can we can just. <laughs> no, it's difficult. I would yeah. say that um, for me, it probably would be uh, the frequency with which I check stock prices, uh, and I'm you know I'm not the worst. I'm not following you know the, the tape all the time, but. I'll tend to check it once in the morning, maybe like once in the middle of the day, and then at the end of the day. And that is already too much frequency for my investment style, which is very low tone turnover. Know your business as well. Uh, it's just, I don't know, like there's this temptation that, uh, boy, what if there's something important happening? I don't want to miss it. And, you know, what if uh, there's a big disconnect? Like I want to be able to take advantage of it in real time. Well, that is true. And that is like, I have done that before, but the number of times where that is the case versus just the, the churn of, you know, mental friction of looking at it is probably way, you know, 10 X any of the benefit that I get from the, those very, very rare opportunities where there's a disconnect in real time that I, that I want to take advantage of. So <clears throat> I would say that that's, uh, where I am, I know better and I'm still continue to, to <laughs> do the wrong thing. I mean, I think me and Eddie has discussed this over over the last year or so. Where, I mean, the volatility in the last years have been, I mean, huge, and I think that drags you into actually more action. So it's, I mean, it's really sure. difficult to 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 not look at at prices. Yeah, I mean, we try to work with uh, price alarms where you get a notification, and you see, okay, now this stock has moved in a certain way or a certain price, so that yeah. that knowing that you you are you still kind of have control over everything. That should uh, make you not look at the stock prices while the market is open, but then you get a bit curious and some, yeah. some pastime. I mean, maybe it's close what? to the maybe it's close to the alarm. It's getting close there. <laughs> I, I need to look. So it, I mean, it's yeah, it's exactly. <laughs> and one of the issues too with those alarms is that um, depending on sometimes how they're set up, they're looking for single day changes. And if it's you know a a small amount that is just keeps happening multiple days in a row. It, it won't get triggered sometimes. And so, you know, like that's the, the gradual change that ends up far away. Like you end up missing that. And I miss it in real time as well, because I'm like, oh, nothing's really happening here. And, but the little, little movements add up to a big movement. And now I'm, I'm a little bit blind to it because it's happening at a, at a pace that is below my consciousness. That's tricky. We can only do our best. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. But um, something else that is interesting in the book is when we do wrong, we get this emotional memory. And uh, we can always learn from other mis others' mistakes. I mean, Munger is telling us that, for example. But how well does that work compared to actually experiencing it and feeling the pain yourself, do you think? Yeah, you know, I mean, it's it's. I think it's really hard to simulate in reading a book what it's like to live through a market crash, for instance. Um, and a big part of that is, you know, you go, let's like look, look at a price chart and go, oh, 1973, 74, there was a, a bear market. Okay. Like, man, look at all these deals that were available. Buffett's talking about how much stuff he bought then. Well, that's all well and good. But to actually be in that moment for two years of markets just grinding you lower is a, a very, very different experience than reading it in a book. It's like the psychology is is night and day difference right so i think we're a little bit um 
we're a little bit sanguine about what it what it really is to to live inside of a market crash, and you can't really experience that inside of a book. Uh, additionally, I would say that um, you can't read about the slow grinding higher of a of a of a market that makes no sense to you. So, like living through a bubble, for instance, you know, in hindsight, it's very easy to say, "Oh, look at like how foolish people were in the late '90s for the dot com bubble." And look how easy, like the value investor guys that were buying good cash flows, like it was so easy. No, it wasn't. It wasn't easy at all to be in it. If for multiple years of feeling stupid, feeling like you're missing something important, feeling like the world knows something that you don't know for multiple years is not easy to do. Very easy to simulate by reading about it, but to actually, the lived experience is a completely different thing. Uh, so, you know, and I would say that even in this book, you know, we, you read about these harrowing stories that people find themselves in and you think like, oh, I would, I would, here's how I would react. Like I would push through, I would, you know, hike out, I would, you know, do all these things like, well, maybe you wouldn't, right? Like that he says that 90% of people are wired to, to panic and that it's a very rare, you know, batch of people who do maintain their head in these, you know, super high, you know, intense situations. And so, to think that you would be one of the 10 is already kind of going against the base rate. Um, and so, you know, it's very easy to sit in your chair and imagine how you would react. Uh, but let's be real. Like it's, you, you, you probably panic as well. And then it's hard to think about what the right thing to do is in that panic state. And, you know, all that same stuff applies to, to markets as well. Yeah. I, I found it uh, fascinating in the, in the book that he writes that children under six years old are, is one of the categories that are, have the highest survival rate in this kind of, uh, when you're lost in the wild or so, while children seven to 12 years old, they are one of the highest uh, of not getting back when they're lost in that situation because they panic. Yeah. What do you think? The, I, I was wondering about that. I wonder if the answer to that might be kind of cultural in that um, I bet if we rewound the clock a uh, couple thousand years to a, a band of hunter gatherers, let's say, I bet children seven to 12 would have done okay in in those same survival situations, maybe even better than the, you know, five to seven year olds, uh, just because I think they would have been in that experience outside and had, you know, a, a lot of cultural learning. I think what happened probably with this data set that he's looking at, if I had to guess would be that, you know, those seven to 12 year olds had, uh, probably not been conditioned that much for for those you know outdoor situations and really been kind of like fish out of water at that point and had didn't have the cultural like learning of how to survive that you probably would have picked up so they the younger ones are operating purely on instinct at that point right like that's how they're surviving they don't have any cultural awareness to to do one thing or another um but anyway that, that that's just my hypothesis and one of the key conclusions of the book is that survivors often have a positive mental attitude. And I was thinking about Buffett's premise to always be an optimist, in, both in life and in investing. So I, I feel that, I mean, pessimists often get, uh, I mean, a lot of uh, space in, in newspapers and so on. It's sensationalists. And I mean, it's, uh, it's uh, yeah, I mean, it drags readers into reading it, of course. They say it sound right, but... These pessimists sel seldom earn any any returns. So, how to balance optimism with the deadly sin of becoming an over optimist? I agree. Uh, I think that that is very a, a a huge 
issue actually in the world today. And if you look there, if you go looking for it yourself, there are countless trends in the world that are never in the news because they're slow to develop. They're unsensational. They don't sell ads. They don't get eyeballs. But those trends show how the world is just improving in myriad ways. And, you know, I think in general, the trend for humanity is is this gentle up and to the right. Uh, and it's very easy to forget that in the day to day because the news is so sensational and so often negative. And <clears throat> I mean, think about what the environment looked like what, that we evolved in. It was, you know, you didn't know news from outside of a 25 mile radius, let's say. Like you lived in this very small circumscribed area that, you know, there wasn't. And now, so today you see in real time from the camera phone of, you know, mass shooting or, uh, you know, some, something terrible happening. And every single day it's, it's being bombarded in. Right. And it's, of course, those things are, are terrible and we need to figure out ways to, to solve them. But you would have never had that level of negative things being bombarded in your psyche constantly like we have today if you follow the news. And so I think the news is just, you know, like I think Mark Twain made a, you know, a joke or equipped that or if you don't read the newspaper, then you're un, you're uninformed. But if you do read the newspaper, then you're misinformed. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's. I don't know what the right answer is for news sources necessarily, because I think you still have to try to take an active interest in the world. But what I try to do is, is, and it usually comes in books, is to find those counterbalances of all of the positive things that are happening for humanity that take a longer time sweep um, and, and that show that things really are getting better. It's just slow and it's steady. Um, and you know, sometimes it's, there are steps back, but in general, the trend line is, is up and to the right. One of my favorite books on that subject is Matt Ridley's The Rational Optimist. Have you have you read that book? Amazing book. Yeah. One of my favorites. Absolutely. There's a there's a new one out. Um, I don't know how new it is, but it's newer, uh, and it's called Ten Trends That Every Smart Person Should Know," something like that. And it's I don't quite get the name of it. It says Ten Trends" because there's like a hundred trends in the book, but but there it's showing how the world is getting better, um, and. You know, just go through that and you read it and you're like, yeah, of course, like these things are all sort of like gently improving. And that's, and, and you know where a lot of the improvement actually is, is for the lower, you know, call it one and a half, one to two billion people on the planet. Um, that's where a lot of the the improvement has come from. Like we've, we've really eradicated poverty and famine in a way that is truly impressive. But like, when was the last news story you saw that said like, uh, <laughs> you know, a billion people didn't starve today. Uh, you know, like that's just not a news story. Uh, but yet that's the truth compared to a hundred years ago. So um, at least percentage wise, um, as, as far as famine and, and haunting people. So uh, I, I still agree with Buffett that the the luckiest person is the one who was born today. Uh, and that based on what their, their life is likely to look like. I mean, so just to, to dig a bit deeper into that subject of, I mean, being an, an optimist in in the investing world. So, I mean, how how do you how do you work with that? I mean, how do you, for example, if you read all this negative news and everything seems to go to to zero more or less in a in a crisis, how do you how do you end up and and being this optimist? Well, I think I I aim towards being a realist. If I'm, uh, and what does that mean then? I look for the as close as I can to the the factual uh, 
data that's that's what's actually happening in the company, uh, as opposed to people's opinion of the data of what's happening in the company. So uh, uh, Jim Chandos has this this nice analogy that he calls the information onion, and on the outer layer of the onion are uh, you know articles, news sources, blogs, and that's everyone's opinion about what that company is doing. And then the next layer in is uh, would be like probably like sell side research, maybe, which is a little bit closer to sort of the truth uh, compared to everyone's opinion, because these are a little bit more informed, at least hopefully. Uh, and then inside of that would be the, the, the company's projections, the company's take on what's happening. And you have to recognize that they're going to be overly optimistic. That's their job. They're selling something a little bit off in there, right? Um, and then at the deepest level of that onion is where the, the highest density of truth lives. And that's the actual filings of the company. That's what the company has to tell you. The next layer out is what the company wants to tell you. And then the, the another layers outside of that are what people want you to believe about what the company is telling you. So um, I, I want to get as close as I can into that core truth and live there. And, and it's really a matter of like, what's your information diet look like? Like you should be trying to eat the core of the onion more often than the outside of the onion. This uh, triggered a thought in, in, in my mind, because in the, in the book, they talk a lot about finding the core in yourself and how important it is that you are uh, true to yourself, you are focused and uh, not influenced. And, and now we spoke about it from a news uh, point of view, but in, in these kind of survival situations, it's really about not getting lost in your own mind, so to say. It's quite similar maybe as this. I mean, you have to go back into yourself. Who are you without all those thoughts running around? Who are you at the, at the inner core of yourself? What are your thoughts on that? You know, there's a there's a great... Um, it was actually originally a, um, a speech that was given to the cadets at West Point, and it was turned into an article. And I'm, I'm forgetting the name of the author at the moment. I think it was something like... Uh, Dershowitz or, or, but I don't, I don't think that was right, but forgive me. I don't, <laughs> I'm not giving proper attribution, but the, the core of it, it was called on solitude and it was really ostensibly about leadership. And you think like, wait, leadership, I'm leading people. What does that have to do with solitude by myself? And one of the points that he makes is that, uh, he said that often his first thought on something is always someone else's thoughts. So that first version of it, you know, that first like gut, you know, like, here's what I think about this is generally a regurgitation of something that he read somewhere or that, you know, culturally was imprinted on him. And by being in solitude and actually having a chance to think about it, he's saying that solitude is really like not having other people's thoughts bombarding into your mind. And that to me is, I think, a hugely important thing that with today's tools of, you know, listening to podcasts and, uh, you know, YouTube and Twitter, and like it's so easy to just mainline other people's thoughts right into your brain and never give yourself the chance to hear like what is that inner voice saying? Uh, we're, we we don't we ignore that inner voice, and I think that that inner voice often won't talk to us until we've given it a little bit of time to breathe and not have uh, like that first thought being kind of someone else's throwaway thoughts. And so, uh, I think the deeper insights come when you do have that solitude, when you're, you know, for me, it's out hiking or walking by myself in the quiet. And that's where I get interesting ideas. And I like, I move past everyone else's thoughts and I start to 
to synthesize and distill my own thoughts into to unique, interesting things, um, sometimes interesting, often harebrained and not very good, but um, you know, sort those out later after you get home. But that's, I think, uh, is hugely underappreciated and, and underpracticed is getting that, that quiet time and that solitude where you don't have other people's thoughts just like smashing into your brain. And in the book, they describe it as uh, having a f- being like a philosopher uh, versus being a common person. And uh, if you are a philosopher, then you're accountable only to yourself. You only mm-hmm. that's where you start everything based from on yourself. Kind of sounds like Buffett's inner scorecard, huh? <laughs> exactly. Everything goes back to him. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost like he's figured out a lot of things, and then and then figure out a way to convey it in a in a in a way that is uh, very easy to digest for the average person. <laughs> That's fantastic. And, and speaking about the mind and and this topic, I mean, something that comes up many times in the book is how vital it is to adapt to new circumstances in order to, order to survive. And Gonzalez writes about the four poisons of the mind. And he, these are fear, confusion, hesitation, and surprise. And they come from a Korean martial art from the beginning. And, and I think this is very related to investing. Do you have an opinion about this? Yeah, I mean, I... I, uh, journaling is the answer for me in this situation. And just like I said, getting those thoughts out, sometimes it's other people's thoughts that have to get puked out first before my real thoughts emerge. And in general, I would say that I don't know what I think about something until I have to write about it. And that is a forcing function for me to, to really dig in and and think about something. And I, what I found often is that my first what I think about something is I, I end up, I start writing about it and then I realize, oh my gosh, I have this 180 degrees backwards and I'm actually like, I think the the opposite of true is what is what my original premise was. And I wouldn't have been able to reveal that to myself until I've actually tried to write about it. So, you know, whether I'm journaling and just writing to myself or, some, you know, writing a quarterly letter or, um, <clears throat> you know, wherever it is that I'm writing is is what I found is like how I it helps me to think. And uh, as investors, we are always on the lookout for our next idea, which may be good sometimes, but bad. I mean, often it's maybe better to to focus a bit more on 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 your existing investments. But I think it's quite quite human nature to to go on the lookout for the next next one. And uh, we often get excited when we find what we think we're looking for. And a common mistake is to avoid thinking about what can what can actually hurt your idea and and go ahead. And yeah. I was thinking about this when I read the example of the the group. I think they were on snowmobilers who went up a mountain while while knowing the avalanche risk was huge. Yeah. Um, do you have some kind of way to to cool down your excitement before going ahead? Is it is it journaling again, or do you have another way of doing this? Uh, it, it is, but in this context specifically, I think um, I I record my state a lot. So what does that mean? It means like. Did I get a good night's sleep last night? Did I, you know, is my uh, HRV high or low, heart rate variability, which is an indicator often of like how rested are you? What's the, how, how ready are you to, you know, take on a big project that day? Um, did I, you know, it, it, am I stressed out because of projects or, you know, I had an argument with, with my wife or something like there's, there's lots of different ways for me to be suboptimal. And so I try to be very conscious of my state and how I'm feeling and, and the way to increase consciousness is to record it. And so capturing those things, and especially uh, a, 
a temporal measurement. So like multiple recordings over time and seeing the trend is actually where the real power is in that. Any one data point is is actually a little bit of a throwaway, but it's the trend that is very interesting to see. And so what I like to, what that tells me then is like, okay, I w- if I'm not feeling 100% on a day, like I feel great, I feel rested, I feel clear, I will record like, okay, today is a no decision day. Like I'm, you know, I was tired. I, I didn't get a good night's sleep or whatever it is. I'm suboptimal. It's a no touch day. And and even maybe like, I'm not going to do a ton of work either on, on investing stuff because I know the work is likely to be lower quality. So I can't trust it as much, especially if there's a large qualitative component to it. Um, you know, I'm, I'm just unlikely to have that breakthrough idea today. So let's not push it. So that, that's how I try to like counterbalance some of that stuff is um, through just being aware of my state. Have you and and the result, the outcome of that? Have you have you ended up doing as you said, or or have you overridden it? Uh, no, I I tr- I've thus far I haven't overridden it, and that is probably more. Um, I would probably attribute that more to laziness than discipline. Um, so if you tell yourself like today's a no you know, don't work hard today. It's really easy to then just not, I'm not going to override that, right? Like I'm just, just, just lazy enough not to do that. So um, <clears throat> thus far I have, I have been pretty good about that one. <laughs> but there could be a risk that you feel a bit lazy and you don't do it. And then the next day you're like, no, I'm not 100%. I will wait one more day and then one more day. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it, it can happen, but you know what my, uh, that's what comes back to knowing yourself, I think again. And I know that my passion for this is likely to cause me to over uh, overdo it rather than underdo it. And so this is a check on that overdoing it. If I, w- if I knew that I wasn't that passionate about this, well, one, I should probably not be doing it, but uh, at least professionally. But if I, was, if I was worried that I was underdoing it consistently, then yes, I think that that would be an ex- that laziness and that excuse could, could hamstring me from making progress. But it's more like I need to like back the throttle off most of the time, which is, is my personal condition that I know about myself. And related to this, I mean, in the book, we learn about sunk costs where many adventurers, they, they go too far. They're already so emotionally committed and they can't move back and they just continue on this hopeless path anyway. Yes. And that's when we already, we have taken the decision. We can't go back pretty much. And now we, is that your, like, do you stop? As you said, now you stop and you don't do any, you don't take any decisions. You don't work on it. But do you have any other advice on how to avoid sunk costs? Yeah, two two ideas. Um, number one is Annie Duke has a new book out called Quit that is quite good. And, and in it, she talks about kill criteria. And what those are, are as you're making a decision, if you're going to say yes, you identify ahead of time what conditions would have to exist for you to change your mind about that. So this in this instance, it could be, I'm going to buy this you know company and add it to my portfolio. But if at any point you know, X, Y, Z happens, I'm going to sell. And that could be, you know, valuation. It could be some corporate governance thing. There's a million different reasons that you would want to undo what you decided. But identifying those ahead of time allow you to sort of peek around the corner of what could go wrong. They're a form of a pre-mortem in a way. Um, And then holding yourself accountable to those things so that you then, uh, you make hopefully what's the right decision in a time where it could be very difficult to do it in an emotional state. Because a lot of times what triggers these things are are bad things happening. And that's the time where you're likely to be panicked and make a bad decision. Um, and additionally, uh, that could be over euphoric about something. So what ends up happening is you can 
let's say you buy something and it's going up, boy, does that make you feel like you're very smart, right? Like I deserve these gains. I'm a genius. I figured this out, right? And it's it's very easy to uh, trick ourselves into then when you feel like you're a genius, all those next data points that come in about the company can also, you you have rose colored glasses when you're looking at them. Like you feel good about that company. Price is driving how you feel about that company. And so <clears throat> if you can recognize that, um, and if you pre-programmed in that, boy, if this company got to this valuation, I just wouldn't feel comfortable holding it. You can then take the right, hopefully the right decision to to maybe sell or trim at some point. Whereas it's very easy when, if you don't have that pre-programmed, you just keep your escalation of how good you feel about that company can lead you to hold it for much farther than probably you should have. And that's a, an escalation of commitment to that company. And you just get blind to how much you, you fall in love with it. And that's that's probably not a good structural way to to go about running a portfolio is falling in love with companies. Um, so that's, that's number one. Um, you know, number two would be, uh, I, I often wonder in the in the research process, is there an optimal amount of time in which to a, l- to look at a company before you decide I'm just going to give up? And <clears throat> what can I think ends up happening to a lot of us is that you spent all this time researching this company, and it's not quite obvious yet to you whether you should buy it or not. But you keep digging and digging, and eventually your brain is likely to come up with reasons to want to buy it. And you don't want to just give up at that point because you've already invested all this time into it. So I think we can fall prey to that sunk cost bias in our research process by not recognizing that uh, you know, there's probably if there was a certain point, an amount of time that you spent researching it and you if it didn't if it wasn't painfully obvious by then that it was a buy or a sell, you should probably just pass and move on and find something else and look for something that is more obvious sooner because um I, I don't have the data to support this yet within my own process, but I'm tracking it now to where I will figure out what my optimum amount of time is. And someday I'll be able to tell you what that is. Uh, but it's, uh, <clears throat> I think everyone has their own probably idiosyncratic amount of time that is optimal for them. And so unless you're measuring these things, then you, you know, you're unlikely to, to find what that optimum breakpoint is for you. I mean, I'm, I, I think, Jake, it really sounds that you have been thinking about how to improve improve your investment process. And I think, I mean, as we go into discussing journalistic a bit, you've actually done more than thinking. You've actually built up a company around this. And uh, I'm a big fan and, and user of journalistic uh, myself. And I think you released it in a beta version. Was It, it was more than a year ago, but I, I don't remember the exact date. <coughs> yeah, uh, it was... It was uh, like fall of 2021. We we started a closed kind of alpha test where we, you know, invite only to to people to come in and um, show them what we built so far, and then ask them what what else could we build for them that they would uh, that they would value. And we ran that for more than a year, uh, and then finally in uh, last late November of 2022, we we opened that beta up to to the public so that anyone could get in and and uh, start working. And can you can you briefly tell us a bit about the the program? What 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 can you do more or less? Sure. I mean, I mean, basically, uh, like I said before, it was really just wanting to scratch my own itch of of learning about my own investment process. And at the end of the day, if you think about it, it's it's trying to accumulate on the front end of a of a process all of the important factors that then drive the results, and then 
tying those results back in with the the inputs on the front end. And what it, that ends up doing is closing these feedback loops that let you learn faster. And that's what really we're aiming for is to help you learn faster. What works in your investment process? What doesn't? Where do you trip yourself up? Where are you being successful? And a lot of this stems from trying to solve behavioral bias issues. And you know, we can I think what what a common mistake that happens even for professional investors is that they will read about these behavioral biases. They'll read Kahneman, Tversky, they'll read Malbosin, they'll read Annie Duke, they'll read Phil Tetlock. But just because you read about it and you can say what those biases are, sunk cost bias, overconfidence bias, super reaction syndrome, like you've read Munger. Okay, but do you have things built structurally into your process to try to negate some of those very natural uh, short circuits that can happen? And that this software is built basically to try to provide that structure to to alleviate the biases that can seep into your process. So um, it's that's that's what we're going after is to try to solve these problems. And you know, it, it's it's incredibly rich area to work because there's so many different places that it touches, um, but. I think we've done a pretty good job so far of of getting that started. Um, there's a million more things that I want to build that will help us. I think, um, but uh, but so far so good, and I, I'm excited to see what else we end up building for everyone to use. I think we're going to really help a lot of investors remove bias from their process. I mean, my my the clue I have after after having used it for for more than a year is that I mean you will you will have uh, many different investors using it for different purposes and. I mean, myself, for example, I've mostly used it for recording all my decisions and mm-hmm. I mean, recording if I read an annual report, quarterly report, uh, conference call, what are my what are my thoughts about this company? And you can really follow that over the process of, of your, your investment career, more or less. And about this, I mean, having this feedback loop, it takes time. I mean, I, I've used it for more than a year and it's more or less now where I can really go back and, and look at, at some of the decisions I made. Were, were they thoughtful? How can I improve this? I mean, for mm-hmm. example, do I will I earn more from, from, from trimming uh, stocks or should I just buy and hold and, and so on? It can really form your process, I think. And yeah, it would, will be really interesting to hear about, I mean, your thoughts about what, what you see that investors actually gain from, from using it. And, and if it's really the thought you had from the beginning or, or if it's new things. <laughs> yeah, there's, uh, there's some, been some already some interesting things to emerge from that. Y- you hit the nail on the head in that um, the, the payback of using, like the true full payback of getting the most value out of this tool requires some upfront investment by the user. Like you have to put your stuff in. It's, it's actually analogous to, to going to the gym or eating healthy. You know, you start doing it on day one in, let's say, January, uh, and you have the best intentions. But if you don't follow through for a, a, a period of time, you just kind of won't see the results. I mean, that's unfortunately that's just the nature of it, that's the nature of most good, important changes that you can make is that they take time and that you have to invest in them, and you kind of get out of it what you put into it. Um, so if you're someone who does like measuring themselves someone who likes uh, taking notes, who likes learning and likes uh, seeing those those data points about your process and getting better, then I think this is like an amazing tool for you. But if you don't really, you know, if you kind of want like instant gratification and if you just want to like eat that first marshmallow and not get two marshmallows later, I'm, I'm not sure that this tool will help very much, unfortunately. So it, it is not for everybody, but I think for a certain person that this is like 
when they do see it, it's going to be a big aha for them and they're going to get it and uh, want to work right away. Um, but, but yeah, you hit the nail on the head that it, there is some delayed gratification to this. Uh, and uh, <laughs> unfortunately, we're, we're working on ways to kind of make it more fun to get you from the beginning to that point where you get the value, like, uh, you know, like journaling streaks and things like that, that will help you make it a little bit more fun um, and provide some honestly provide some dopamine along the path that like keeps you interested and, and wanting to work on it. Um, but, but I do firmly believe that you will, you'll be in such a better place a year from now, if you start today and are are a little bit disciplined about doing it, that, um, I feel very comfortable that that people are going to get a lot of value out of it. And honestly, I think it's going to really help returns for those people. I don't like to promise returns like ever in any context, but, I just don't see how if you're diligent about working on your process like this, that you're not just an infinitely better investor than when you started. I mean, when, when, when I look at all the opportunities you have, I mean, you add different stuff all the time for the, for the software. I, I actually feel that for myself, at least, it's, it's good to just start. I mean, start with just, uh, I mean, recording your decisions, for example. You don't need to use everything in the beginning because then I... I mean, in the end, as, as as you release more things, I think it may get. I mean, the hurdle gets a bit bigger if you if you're gonna do everything. So, mm-hmm. I think. I mean, uh, for for all our listeners, I mean, check out journalistic.com uh, to learn more, and we will put it in the show notes a, as well. Yeah, I would say that like the the call to action would be uh, get an account, go in and just journal about one idea that you've been having and record a feeling about it. That's one of our, one of the features that we have is the ability to record a feeling. And, you know, it could be that you feel good about it or bad about it. It doesn't matter. But after you record that feeling, then click on that name, the price, or or click on that idea. Like, let's say it was Berkshire or Amazon or whatever it was. And that will then navigate you to a page that shows you a price chart and it'll show you that journal entry overlaid on the price chart. And you'll be able to see your feeling recorded. And now just put project yourself mentally a year from now. And imagine that you've diligently recorded your feelings over that time period. And you've been you know, taking notes in there and, and recording them. And they're all overlaid on that price chart. And you'll be able to see your journey of ownership over that year and how your feelings have been changing. And now imagine yourself really... More thoroughly understanding yourself as an owner of that business and how you feel about it, I think hopefully that's enough of a little bit of an imagined carrot out in the future that it'll give you that you'll be excited enough to see that that future come about that you'll you'll put in the work along the way or at least try to get a habit developed of of recording some of these things. And the last section in our episodes is about books and and writing, and now we touched upon uh, a journaling system. So I, I have to ask how much you are writing today. Um, well, I mean, I'm at a, we can look at it a few different ways. Like I'm at a, um, like about a 515 day journaling streak using journalytic, um, which is good. Like that means every day I'm getting in good work and at least a little bit of something like, I think that it's, there's a saying, I think it's something like, um, you know, we overestimate what we can get done in a month, but we underestimate what we can get done in a year. And a lot of that has to do with just the, the compounding effect of of working on something relentlessly, just relentless, incremental, tiny forward progress over a long period of time is takes you to places that is very, very hard to imagine. And so, you know, it's reading a bunch of books, you know, over a long period of time. It's just getting a little bit 
little less stupid than I was when I woke up when I go to bed. Um, you know, that, that kind of munger idea of continual improvement. Uh, and I think that journaling has that same potential where just getting a, you know, a little bit better process, a little bit more in tune with my feelings, a little bit more uh, better understanding of my companies. All of those things uh, in a single day are immeasurable, but over a long period of time, they really add up. Um, you know, and the other thing that I I think like the other thing that was like really important to me about this was that you know I've been studying Buffett and Munger for a really long time, and you know I'm listening to their the the annual meetings over and over again, and really you know I continue to just deep dive on it because I think it's such a high quality, high signal to noise uh, resource. And I'm watching these guys and I watched actually their, their decay from the early nineties. These guys are so sharp. I mean, just incredibly smart, quick, witty, funny. They're still sharp and they're still funny. They're still witty, but they slowed down over time as they, you know, they're 90 years old now. Buffett or Buffett's 92. He's going to be 93 this year. Munger's 99 this year. Um, and watching that, like I realized, okay, I'm already starting off at a lower base than these guys. I'm not as smart as them. And I'm going to decay from here. What can I do to slow that decay? And I think the technology of actually like writing down my thoughts and having, I'm trying to build a second brain that I can lean on as I get older and I could go back and search through it. Like my memory is going to be bad at some point. And I'm never going to be as smart as these guys. But if I can use these, this technology to build a second brain along the way over the next 40 years, I'm hoping that that will keep me at a level where I wouldn't be if I was just trying to keep it all in my head. At, and which is what uh, I think is a, is a dangerous strategy for me as I get older. I think I'm just going to keep forgetting things. I'm just not going to like I'm going to decay. So I need to like try to find a way to build as I'm going. It's amazing when you zoom out like that and, and think about it in that, from that perspective. But I, I think we can also connect this with the survival stories because they were one of the key things that they did were, were making small goals that they could reach all the time. Just focus on the next hour of survival. What can I do? Keep yourself, uh, keep yourself doing that. So, uh, and also Callahan that, that you mentioned, Nicholas, uh, drifting over the Atlantic on the boat. He was actually writing a diary uh, at the time. So... Uh, yeah, I think that's. I think there's something so insightful and powerful about that. Um, you know, just survive to fight another day, uh, in 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 your life, in your investment world, uh, whatever it is. Like, I think that's 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 the name of this game, right? It's just just survive and make it to another day, and and uh, be a little bit smarter that next day because of the work that you did the day before. And and I think eventually, you know, you'll you'll deserve all the good things that happen at that point. So what are your thoughts on bringing all this together into another book? <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> the pain of writing a book is is immense. So uh, I'm not too eager to put that yoke back on again, uh, especially while I'm you know building these other projects. Um, but at some point, maybe someday there'll be a... Uh, I, I think I've made the joke before that a book is is more like something that you have to like dislodge out of your guts and not you know, it's not, it's, 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 it's this ghost that's haunting you that you, you're trying to, to remove more than this, you know, aspirational good thing that you're going towards. So I don't have any ghosts that need removing right now. Uh, you know, there's nothing that's haunting me enough to feel like I need to write about it in an, in an entire book form. Uh, and, you know, part of that is my, my creative energies get dissipated right now in 
you know, doing a, a weekly veggie segment on value after hours, in writing a quarterly letter, in uh, designing software to help investors, like all those things tap into my creative energies and um, it doesn't build up enough to where like, okay, you've got this giant, you know, reservoir of energy that needs to go out somewhere in the form of a book. So um, that it's unlikely at this point, I guess I should say, <laughs> would be the short answer. <laughs> and before we finish, I mean, when we discussed in 2021, we know that Charlie Munger called you up and he wanted to bring the Rebel Allocator to Hollywood. So we oh, have yeah. to ask you, what, what's the status now? Uh, the status is hiatus, I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's not really anything happening on that front at the moment. Um, I, I, at one point I had a, uh, a friend who was working on, he wanted to write us this, he like wanted to sketch out a screenplay for it. And, um, <clears throat> I don't know if just time or whatever, like it's, it's kind of gone, gone a little dormant at the moment. So no, there's no plans for that. Uh, I guess if someone else wants to try to hop on that, if there's, they feel inspired, like I'm, I'm open to, <laughs> to, <laughs> to ideas, but like my energy and time for that is, is relatively small. Um, so I, I, uh, I'm more passionate right now about these other projects I want to, I want to work on. So I understand that. Thank you so much, Jake, for coming on Investing by the Books podcast a second time to share your thoughts on the book, Deep Survival, as well as your investment process and journalistic. Do you want to add something more before we finish up here? No, just uh, thank you guys for for having me on again. It was a real pleasure. And um, yeah, I'd look forward to hopefully seeing you guys at Berkshire in, the, in what, three or four months. We will be there. Looking forward to it. Thank you so much, Jake. We are taking on new and exciting projects here at Red Eye. So starting from this episode, we will now release shows monthly. We will keep producing interviews of high quality and are always delighted to hear your thoughts and feedback. Thank you for listening to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Red Eye. Follow us on Twitter at IB underscore Red Eye and email us at ib.podcast at redeye.se. To improve, we'd love to hear your feedback, so please rate and review us. Notice that the content in this podcast is not and shall not be construed as investment advice. This information is meant to be informative and for general purposes only. For full disclaimer, visit redeye.se. I'm your host, Eddie Palmian, and until next time, I sincerely wish you the best of luck on your journey through life and investing.